And we do have our new missionaries, and those missionary cards are back there for Brother Kale Horvath and his wife uh, and their young son. They are going to Hungary, so those cards are back there. Please take them home. And as he said in his video, when you hang it on your fridge and when you get hungry, you'll see it on the fridge and pray for them. All right. So we are going to continue. Again, we're in the Great, Ex we're in the great Escape. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. This today is our 80th week in the book of Exodus. I know that sounds like a lot, but it's really not too bad, and we got a ways to go before we're getting it done. But um, what's been exciting, and what we've been doing in the last few weeks, and even last week, what we were doing is actually walking through the process of the development of the tabernacle. We've been walking through very specific details and specific parts. And as we walked through those parts, what we saw last week was they were taking care of the coverings and the curtains. That's what the manufacturers were doing. This is Bezalel, Aholiab, and all the trained craftsmen. Now, they're doing this for God's glory. And what we noticed last week was the significance of the coverings, no doubt, but we also looked at the significance of the way that they were created. And the message last week was called Following God's Instructions. And they were very specific in doing exactly what God said. And we compared that to ourselves. Do we follow God's instructions? So as we start today, what's going to happen? And I know that we should be moving on to the structure of the tabernacle, but we're not going to do that today. God, really, as I was writing the other message, God said, look, this is a time to pause. You need to stop right here in our study. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go back to really what this is all about. Because I think we can lose sight of the forest when we get so focused on the trees. Right? And we've been working about very specific details in this walk with the book of Exodus. And we've seen God do the incredible through the adventures. We've seen the miraculous all the way to the tragic through this study of the, of the, of the Israelites. And as we're looking at this, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the purpose of the tabernacle. Not about all the parts and pieces, but we're going to look at the purpose. Why did God want it to be? Because what can happen, if we're not careful, the study of these specific biblical things can become an academic pursuit, where we start to gain knowledge and understanding of specific things, and we lose sight of their purposes because we get so focused upon all the details. So as we're looking at this today, we're going to look at the specific parts. They're not going to be relevant today, but what we're going to look at as the tabernacle as a whole. Now, if we remember way back in the day, I don't know how many, can tell you how many months ago it was, we talked about what the word tabernacle means. The word tabernacle means dwelling. Dwelling, right? So when we think about a dwelling, when you and I consider a dwelling, what do we do? We think about the place that keeps us dry in the rain warm in the winter. We think about a place where we store all of our stuff that keeps the critters away and protects us from the outside of the elements, right? But when we consider this to God, God's saying he wants to have a dwelling, right? The tabernacle. That's not what God's looking for. God doesn't need to be protected from the weather. He doesn't need a place to store his stuff, right? What he is looking for is something that you and I also look for in our dwelling. What a dwelling is to us is it's a place to make memories, right? It's a place for intimacy, right? We can think back to Christmas mornings with our kids, and sweet memories. If you've ever left a house and you moved to a new home and you sat there and you stood in the open in that empty house and you looked around, remember what happened? Remember what happened there? Oh my goodness, that's where, that's where he fell down and busted his head. Oh my goodness, remember that was such a crazy day. Oh my goodness, remember going to the hospital? Oh my gosh, that was so nuts. And we think back to those intimate moments. We think about the, the connection that was there. We think about the love that was there. We think about the intimacy that was developed in that dwelling place. So as we're looking at that, that's our focus today. The reason why a dwelling is relevant to God is because God wants to connect with us. He wants to strengthen that relationship that is loving, that is intimate. 
So as we pause today, our focus is going to be on our, this message today is titled The Intimacy, Intimacy with God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity, Lord, to be in your word. And God, I thank you for pausing us in our study. Lord, I had no doubt that you stopped me dead in my tracks and uh, spoke to my heart about where we need to shift our focus. God, we, uh, we're so busy trying to fill our head with knowledge that many times, Lord, we lose sight of the fact that the word's not just to inform, it's to transform. So God, transform us today. Help us, Lord Jesus, to shift our attention off of understanding the Bible and allowing the Bible to change us. God, speak to our hearts, grip us, and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we get started, I thought it only made sense for us really to kind of go back to the beginning. We want to look at God's heart, okay? So we're going to go to back to Exodus chapter number 3, verse 7. It says here, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the, land, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of the land, and unto a good land, and a large, unto a, a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I want you to notice here that God responds to the suffering of the people. God responds. He doesn't just respond, but He compassionately Responds. Look at what that verse says back there in verse 7. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I see their pain. I understand their suffering, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by the reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. I care about their pain. I'm responding to them because I care about them. And what's interesting to note here is that the love that we see, this is God's love's clearly seen in the way that he responds, but what you'll notice is the fact that God's love is, it's a one-sided thing. <laughs> because in this instance, the love is only from God's side, right? I want you to consider the fact that these Israelites, they're not calling out to God, we want to worship you, Lord. We can't wait to love you and honor you, God. That's why we're calling out. <laughs> That's not at all why they're calling out. That's the last thing they're thinking about. They're in a desperate situation, dude. They have, for the last 400 years, they have embraced paganism. They haven't let this thing to infiltrate their lives. They've been poisoned by it. Not only mention that, but they're under the bondage of sin in Egypt. They have a taskmaster over them who is Pharaoh, who is a picture of Satan himself. And here they are in the bondage of sin, and they're crying out, not because they love God, not because they desperately want to have a relationship. They're calling out in desperation to be saved out of their circumstance. That is their reason for calling out. In this relationship, there is only love on one side. They cry out in desperation. Now, if we think about this, remember who the Israelites are a picture of. We've talked about the pictures in the book of Exodus. The Israelites are a picture of the individual believer, not the body of Christ as a whole, but the individual believer. So as we picture ourselves in these individual, as these individual believers, when you and I called out, do we call out to God? Man, I want to love you, God! Can I honor you, Lord? I just want to worship you. No. Here we are in bondage to sin, broken, overwhelmed, undone, and we cried out to God in desperation. Exactly the same picture. But who's reaching out, right? God tells us. Jesus says it himself. No man cometh to me but the Father draw him, right? So the love is on God's side, and it's the love of God that's drawing us. It's the love of God that's speaking to us 
in the midst of our desperation. And what does God say about, him, about, this, about his love in, John, in 1 John 4, 19? He says, we love him because he first loved us. Understand this relationship. It's always God reaching out and us responding. So what does God's love look like? That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked me. In the Old Testament, the prophets give us a beautiful picture of God's love. Jeremiah 31, 3. It says here, the Lord hath appeared of old unto men, saying, Yea, I have loved thee, listen to this, with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Loving kindness. Do you hear that heart of God? Here we are, rebellious, defiant, disobedient, and yet, with loving kindness. I have drawn thee. God's love is supernatural. And it's through that kind of love that he draws us. He draws the broken. Why does he draw the broken? Because he wants to judge them? No. He draws the broken because he wants to restore them. That's the point. God's love is what's working behind the scenes. Jeremiah 31.3. I just read that to you. I'll go on to the next one. <laughs> what we see here is God reveals and he heals himself. So he heals the broken. But once he's healed the broken, what does he do? Isaiah 41.13. For I, the Lord, thy God, will hold thy right hand wherever you go. I'm there with you. Saying unto thee, fear not, I will help thee. Listen to the comfort that comes in God's word. He's saying, look, where you go, don't fear not, I will help thee. He calms our fears, guys. He comforts our hearts through his presence. How many of us can attest to that kind of comfort in your life at some point in time? You just felt broken, man. You felt overwhelmed. You felt so totally without hope. And God came. And man, I'm telling you, like a beacon of hope, all of a sudden you went, I can feel his right hand. And you know what? He's helping me right now. I've never been so broken. And yet, how do I feel strength within this broken body? Because God is restoring. It's amazing, man. Truly, truly amazing. And then the book of Zephaniah, we see a beautiful picture of God's adoring love for his children. Listen to Zephaniah 317. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. Listen to that. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Can we hear God's love for us? Are we deserving of that love? No. We're disobedient. We're rebellious. We're a picture of these individual Israelites, man, or these individual Israelites. We're individually pictured in them. So God created us for fellowship with him. That was the purpose. That's why we were created. That fellowship existed until Genesis 3. And what happens? In that moment, because of sin, the, that fellowship was broken. The Bible tells us that, we, that Adam and Eve used to walk in the cool of the day with God. He heard, they heard the voice of God walking in the cool of the day. A voice doesn't have feet. That was, a, that was an incarnation of Christ himself walking through the garden, saying, hey, you know what? Let's walk together. Let's fellowship together. Let's talk about our day. And then suddenly it was like, Adam and Eve, where are you? Oh, we hid ourselves because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? We were ashamed. Oh, guess what? You know why they were ashamed? Because sin. Sin brings shame. So the fellowship was broken, not because God chose it to be, because man chose it to be. And as we follow this historical record of these Israelites, as their exodus out of Egypt, what we have seen is a graphic representation, a picture for us to see not only their deliverance, but our deliverance. Understand, it's all pictured here. The Old Testament is a picture book of life. 
It's a picture book of the concepts of God. So as he shows us in this picture, Exodus 3, what do we see? We see a people crying out to God. We find them in desperation. They're afflicted and they cry out. And what happens? God sends them in response, right? In response, because of his love, what does he do? He sends a deliverer. He sends a deliverer and a man named Moses, right? And then we think about the fact that, guess what? When you and I cried out in desperation, what was his response? What did God do? John 3, 16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that verse, you've heard it a thousand times over, but I want you to listen to it with new ears. For God so loved, he loved the world. This is a picture of him, right? God is love. He gave, man. He gave his only begotten son. He gave his very best because he said, you know what? I could keep my son protected. I could keep him safe or I could send him there. Because I love them so much, I'm willing to give even that. That whosoever, meaning no, no, you don't have to be good. You don't have to be qualified. You don't have to be worthwhile. You can be the biggest piece of trash on this earth. Hello. And God says, you know what? Even for you, even for you, they should not perish, but they shall have everlasting life, man. I will restore them from their broken state. I will make them whole, not because they're worthy. And so what happened? God's response, motivated by the same love that sent him to the Israelites, the same love, sent a deliverer, a deliverer and a man named Jesus Christ. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Jesus came to deliver us out of bondage. The very same thing that the Israelites were in, bondage to sin. They were in bondage to slave owners, and our slave owners, our, slave, uh, our slavery is to this world. It's to the sinfulness of our flesh. And Jesus came to break us out of that bondage. Remember, Egypt is a picture of sin. It is a picture of the world. Nothing good comes out of Egypt. Anytime you see Egypt referenced in the scripture, it's always referencing the world and sin. So then what happens? God does the miraculous. Here they are in the midst of their sin. God does the miraculous. He brings plagues. He brings suffering into Egypt to break the bondage, to get them out of that bondage, to free them. And then here comes Jesus Christ. <laughs> he does the miraculous. He endures the suffering himself on the cross. Why? To break the bondage of sin and to free us. These pictures work side by side, man. Then the people shift into the wilderness, right? They leave Egypt and now they're going to go into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? The wilderness is a picture of the Christian life. It's what we're in right now. You are in the wilderness as we speak. You've come out of Egypt. You've left that behind. Jesus broke the bonds of the past and we're out in the wilderness. And what do we see in the wilderness? God does the miraculous. He miraculously provides for the people. And we see him doing that time and time again. And over the last year and a half, what we've seen is it's not simply for him to be provide for them. It's not just simply about provision. It's about teaching them. It's about shaping them. And this Christian life, guess what? It's not just about God providing. He says he'll provide our needs, but guess what? There are plenty of times when God allows tough things to come. He teaches us lessons in this life. He's trying to shape our faith. The exact same thing he's doing to these Israelites. For you see, worshiping God was not their natural state. That didn't come naturally to them. They were drawn to paganism. They were drawn to self. They were drawn to self-serving. And what we describe them as, and four different times in the Bible, it talks about them in this book of Exodus, we see them listed as stiff-necked, stiff-necked. If you imagine a horse, you're trying to pull a horse this way, and the horse goes, 
We used to have a horse named Poco when I was growing up. I know it's a weird name, but Poco was the craziest horse in the world. You get on Poco and he would immediately try to run you under a tree, take you, like we had these posts that had barbed wire on them. He would go right towards the barbed wire. You'd have to lift your leg like this and he would scrape across. He was just ornery, man. And every time he pulled, he was like, we're going this way. Stiff neck, man. And every time I see that word, I always think about Poco. And what happened? He wanted to do things his way, on his terms, and his timing. And that's exactly the way the Israelites, they want things on their terms. They are self-serving. They're self-interested. Their worship is in self. And if we, you and I were to categorize ourselves, if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably categorize ourselves as stiff-necked. Right? What this means is we have a hard time submitting to God's will because we want to do our will. Right? I'm not, honestly, I'm telling you, that's a yes for me. I would list myself a stick neck. There are plenty of times when God says, you go this way. And I'm like, but I don't know. I'd really like to. Uh. And there's a battle there, a battle with the flesh. Right? So now, these Israelites, they go through the wilderness. And guess what? There are trials, there are challenges, and there are temptations. And we've watched them deal with them. And what happens? Time and time again, they have followed their wisdom. They've done it their way. And there have been consequences, right? How many of us have chosen to do things our way in this life and dealt with the consequences? Yes. So God's allowing us. He's saying, look, you have a choice in this matter. You could do it my way, <laughs> and I'll guide you right through this process. I'll take you step by step exactly how to overcome this. Or you can do it your way. And most times we unfortunately choose our way. What does the Bible say about human wisdom? It says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. It is contrary to God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. People are so caught up with what they think they know that they'll fool themselves into believing they know better than God does. And it's amazing. And they'll sell it to one another. And they'll all believe in on this garbage. So what we, if we were to take the word, uh, this human wisdom, we were going to define it into one word, I would say it, we would call it the flesh. And if we were to follow God, I would say we call that the spirit. Okay? So if we take this and if we go our way, human way, the Bible says in, in Isaiah, it says we all went our own way, you know, as sheep gone astray. Well, we see we're working contrary to God if we do it in the flesh as opposed to the spirit. And we look in this Galatians 5, 17 says this, for the flesh lest it's against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Okay, these two, they are contrary the one to the other. So you cannot do the things that you would. So the things that you would, if you're a born again child of God, you have a natural desire to serve God in you. Okay, there's this draw to serve the Lord. There's this draw because of the fact that the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. So there's that in you. But then it's got all these layers of flesh. We talked about last week at the tabernacle, all the flesh that's in the way. So how it happens is because the flesh and the spirit are in, are in a battle, we find many times that we make our decisions based upon our emotions, and based upon what we believe the world would have us to do, as opposed to submitting to the way God would have us to do. And in doing that, what we do is the influence of the Holy Spirit, the guiding power of God, gets neglected. Right? And then we lift. That's what you call being stiff-necked, folks. That's us. Might have some of us even struggle with that today. There are probably some stiff-necked people that didn't make it. <laughs> They're in their house right now. We'll just watch it online. Fine. <laughs> so it comes down to this, submitting to God. And if we submit to God, and when we fully trust in God, guess what? That becomes a place where we can develop a sense of worship, a sense of connection. These Israelites' failures 
do this continue do the continued failures and God's correction, he's crafting their faith. He's shaping them for what's ahead. And the last few weeks, what's been exciting is we've seen them start to actually start to get it a little bit, right? They finally started bringing the offerings, and the Bible says that they gave more than they needed to give. They started getting excited. And then the craftsmen, man, they're following God's example specifically, man. And as last week, we were like, man, they're getting it. This is awesome. And there are going to be times in our life, man, we're going to get it. You're just going to get on fire floor. Man, let's just do this thing. Let's do it God's way. And you're like, man, things are working out so good. And then we become overconfident. And the next thing you know, we're in the ditch. And we're like, whoa, God, can you fix this? And he's like, could you just do it my way? My way. Notice, and it's a note. Pay attention. God could have easily built the tabernacle without them. He could have just, boom, and the tabernacle would just be sitting there waiting on them. So God doesn't, he doesn't just do it. And this reason is because God is what we call long-suffering. Okay, that's a term, and when you, every time you type that into your phone, it's going to show you as a misprint. But that long-suffering, boy, that's a word you always, always want to focus on. Because guess what? Most of us wouldn't be here if it were not for the long-suffering of God. I can tell you for a fact, first of all, would I not be saved if not for the long-suffering of God? I certainly would not be your pastor if it weren't for the long-suffering of God. I certainly would not have the wife and the family that I have if not for his long-suffering. And I probably would not even be alive if not for the long-suffering of God. So his patience, right? He has patiently waited upon these knuckleheads to finally figure things out. And I know he sits back with us and just like, are you kidding me? When are you going to get it, guys? Come on. And we struggle with it, right? And what happens is God's saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to want you to be a part of this because they want, he wants them to have ownership in this. He wants them to say, you know what, this, we did part of this. this. We brought ourselves. And he also what he wants to do is teach them how to serve him instead of serving themselves. And bringing those offerings, they had to deny themselves. And that's one of the things God teaches us every single day. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So they were given an opportunity. So humility, the humility that's required for service to God is a prerequisite for worshiping God. Because guess what? Humility is absolutely key. And as we're looking at this this morning, we're going to look at this. God's desire for this fellowship, this desire for this intimate relationship with us. And what the reason why this is starting to happen for them is because we know that it's because of willing hearts. Right? That's this little mini-series we're doing in the book of Exodus is willing hearts. Because we finally see that he says you'll give the offering of a willing heart. And we know that these men were, play, were given in their hearts. They were given skills and abilities in their hearts. It's a matter of the heart. So as God gets our heart, what we see is worship starts to develop out of that. Now the Bible tells us in John 4, 23 and 24, it tells us what about worship. It says, the hour cometh and now, now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must, must, must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is the core of why the tabernacle's here. This is the purpose of the tabernacle. I want you to listen to God as he tells us People go, well, why did God build the tabernacle? He told us up front before it ever got built. He told us. He told us. He told us in Exodus 25, 8. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Not that I may dwell within, right? It's not about that. That I may dwell among them. He is seeking to restore the fellowship that was broken from Genesis 
all the way to now, that fellowship has been broken, and God's working to restore it. Look at this in Exodus 29, verses 43 and 46. And there I will meet with the children of Israel. Meet with them. Listen to that. And the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory, and I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the Lord of Israel, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, and brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. Do you think he has a point here? <laughs> I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God, man. He's saying, I want to be close to them. I want to be close to them. But their sin separates us. I cannot be in their presence. They cannot be in my presence. There is no way because the sin, that division is there. So the tabernacle with all of its characteristics, all of its specifications, they're all designed for one thing to sanctify humanity, to give an opportunity for humanity to meet with God, right? This whole purpose of this thing, and you've got to realize, the tabernacle of any object in the entire Bible, this is the most significant object that exists in Scripture. It is a picture of heaven. It is picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a picture of what God's ultimate plan was, all focused on this one object. And it's the depravity, the sinful nature of humanity that created the division in the first place. And like always, what's happening? God's taking the first steps. He's saying, look, build this place so that we can meet. They're not going, God, can we build a place so we can meet? No. He's saying, you'll build a place so that we can meet. Their desire isn't that. They're going, we're good with kind of the way things are, you know. And whenever God did want to speak to them, what happens? They said, hey, you know what? When, G when Moses went up on the mountain, they were like, you know what? They heard God's voice one time, and they're like, you know, <laughs> that, was a, that was a bit much with the whole thing here, God's voice. Could, tell you what, Moses, could you just kind of be our advocate and go talk to God? Because that was really scary. We're not sure we want to be uh, talking to God directly. So we see here is this, complaint this complete sanctification that will one day be with the priests, right? The priest's office. There will be a high priest. That high priest will have an opportunity to go be in the presence of God. So we see pictured in the tabernacle through the communion that God wants to have with the priests is the picture of what he wants with us, All right? So he's creating a way through the tabernacle to restore fellowship so that that closeness can be returned. Remember, God wants to be our friend. That's this picture. God's not there as a judge wanting to judge us and destroy us or hold us just accountable. He wants a love relationship with us. The very thing that he had in Genesis, he wants again. So, so not only here back then, now understand, you and I, what's awesome is we don't have to make animal sacrifices anymore. Right? I don't have to sacrifice a goat or a sheep. I don't have to get special ceremonial clothing and that's all the weight and all the jewels and all the gems and all the tassels. I don't have all that stuff. I don't have to go through all the ceremonial cleansing. Those things are no longer necessary. That is no longer a part of us in order for us to commune with God. See, God granted us a very specific and amazing access to God through the Son. Right? And we're going to get into specifically why. And what was law required from these priests is no longer required. All the specifications, people that want to live in the Old Testament concepts, guys, you are losing sight. You are discrediting what Jesus did on the cross. The whole reason for the cross was to, to say, look, you know what, that old way, that old law, guess what, that no longer applies. God's given us a new testament, and the Bible tells us it's a better testament. In fact, Ephesians 2.18 says this, For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Where access for the priest was always by the blood of an animal. Guess what? That no longer becomes applicable. Now because the perfect blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the sin of all mankind. That right there, the remission of sins is always through blood. 
Hebrews 9.22 says this, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission of sin. So if the sin is the dividing factor between us and God, there had to be a payment for it. There had to be a way to eliminate that sin barrier in order for us to commune with Him. And when we accept the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, we gain access to God. Hebrews, not, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 20 says this, Having therefore, brethren, listen to this word, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Understand, when you see the word holiest, that's talking about the holy of holies, the tabernacle. The tabernacle proper, right? There was the tabernacle with the courtyards in three different sections. There's the court, then there's the holy place, then there's the most holy, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was the veil that was dividing between those two areas. The priests were the only ones that were allowed to go into this land. They were consecrated. They worked their way through the gates. They came through the gates with thanksgiving. They came to the brazen altar, man. That was a place of, 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 of giving themselves, of, 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 of surrender. It was a place of sacrifice. And we talk about the sacrifice that you and I are supposed to make every day. We're supposed to mortify our flesh. Then they went to the, to the brazen laver, and the laver is a picture of Christ. All the sin that's left over after all that stuff, and we're still dirtied up with the world. We go to that laver, and what do we do? We wash ourselves, a picture of Christ, before we enter into the holy place. And then there's that holiest, the holy of holies. And listen to what he says. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest, he said, look, this is a place where only the, the, only the high priest once a year would get to go. No one else would even have a chance to go in. He had to go the whole year working towards this one day. And literally, they would tie something to his ankle, tie a rope to his ankle. And as he walked in, he had bells on his clothing. And if he fell dead, they would drag him out. He had to be right with God. And all year was worked towards that one moment and the tension of stepping through that veil into the presence of God, the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant sitting there. And we see the Ark. You know, and when you go to the, to the book of Revelation, you see this whole mention of this whole thing. This is just a model. This is a, a cheap facsimile of the real deal. But when you go to heaven, there is no Ark because guess what? That's God. It's a representation of Him. So this man is going to walk in. You and I, let's says here, having therefore, brethren, boldness, we get to boldly walk into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He made that way by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Guys, we become like the priests, sanctified to have access to the Father. Verse 20 in that verse, it says, By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated, he hath consecrated for us. We didn't do it. Through the veil. So the high priest, man, this incredible privilege, this incredible honor to be in the presence of the Holy of Holies, man, it was all about the consecration to step through that veil. The veil was key. That was the division between humanity and God. And what's so cool, as born-again believers, that veil is no longer an issue. No longer an issue. Mark 15, verse 37 through 39. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, man. It is not just ripped. It's not just a hole. It is shredded in half, torn in half. And what's so amazing, the verses back to this tell you that not only did that happen, but the earth reacted, man. The earth shook. That the rocks rent. They broke in half, man. This shook the planet. And when the centurion which stood over against saw that he so cried and gave up the ghost, he said, and here's a lost man looking at what he saw, truly this man was the Son of God. Amen. Trembling in awe of what is just witnessed. That veil that separated God and man, that sin torn in two. 
allowing us access to the everlasting Father, to the God of the universe, to the almighty man. So now we've been granted this unprecedented access. Never throughout history was this ever the case. Never. This is such a special and incredible privilege. We've been given this opportunity that these Old Testament saints, man, these men would wait their whole life for this chance. And what are we doing with it? Every day, we wake up with that access. This man lived his whole life, 364 days for one day, focused on that. We have 364 days, 365 days, and every morning, God says, hey, I'm calling out. Hey, how about if we sit down and talk? How about if we hook up? I just want to get caught up on what's going on in your life. Hey, how about we share our hearts? I've given you my heart. The cool thing about God is he lays it all out. He's not too proud to tell you to tell us that he loves us, right? You ever been in a relationship with somebody who's like, oh, you know, I don't want to let too much out. <laughs> I keep my cards close to my chest, you know, and make sure I got things under control, right? It's amazing. But God's not that way. God's like, hey, man, let me just lay it out there for you. I love you. I love you so much that I'll die for you. I love you that I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. I love 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 you. And we're like, you know what? <clears throat> I appreciate that. Good to hear. Thanks. Appreciate it. The sole purpose of the tabernacle was for God to be restored with his people. To meet with them, he longed for the fellowship that was broken in Eden. And we listen to his desire. Listen to this. He wants an intimate closeness with humanity. That's his desire, right? It's not just a cursory uh, understanding. It's not just a superficial relationship. It is intimate. Listen to Exodus 24, 12. Listen to this. And this is really cool. As he speaks to Moses up on Mount Sinai. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mountain, be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and a commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. And it's nestled in the middle of this verse. You can read over this verse and miss it, man. But this is one of the best verses in the entire Bible for the heart of God. Look at what it says right here. He says, come up into the mount. And notice this. There's a pause there, a pause. And be there, colon, stop. He says, just be there. Moses, can we just... Just connect. I created humanity for this connection, and I long for it. Moses, I miss it. Moses, I want to connect with it. I created my, my perfect creation. I created it perfect. And it, it, it defiled itself. And it's ruined this situation. And our fellowship was broken because of the choices that humanity made. And you know what? I just want to be there with you. Guys, how many have relationships? We just want people to be there. You know, we sit down with our husband or our wife, and you know, we say, look, you know, I just want to sit down and talk. Can we just connect for a minute? And we sit down, and they're distracted. They're disengaged. They're not there. And we're sitting there going, you know what? Just, can, we just, can we just connect? It could be a mother and a child. It could be a child and a parent saying, can we just talk for a minute? Can I just get your attention, please? And it's just superficial. And there's no depth to it. In that moment, what do we want? Could you just be here with me in this moment? Could you just be there for me? Please, I'm pleading for you to connect with me. I want to be with you. That's the, that's the heart of God. He screams it out to us right in that verse, hidden in there. Be there. And yet we treat God as a superficial friend. We don't open up to him. God loves us so much, man. His desire is to connect with us. The whole purpose 
of this tabernacle was to facilitate a way for intimacy with mankind. That's the picture we see throughout this thing. He wants to dwell with them. For you see, as, I, as believers of Christ, as blood-bought saints, as Christ, as children of the Most High, it's not about a building, it's not about a structure, it's about communing with Him. See, there's no longer a need for the structure. There's no longer a need for any of these things. Jesus Christ reunited with humanity, with God, through His death, burial, and resurrection. That, what was once broken, is now restored. Amen. So here we have an opportunity to dwell with Him, to finally do what it is that He wants, to reunite us with God. And again, I ask you the question, what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Are we taking advantage of what we've been given? As God calls out to us, do we respond? Do we wake up in the morning and say, Lord, you know what, let me just connect with you. You know, my friend, I just want to connect with you. Or are we too busy? Is there something in the way? Something else we need to take care of. Understand, God calls out to us through His Spirit, through His Word, and through His people. And understand, the reason why God gave us the mind of Christ, this Bible, is so that we could understand His heart. He's trying to connect with us. This whole thing is about a reuniting of humanity. The reason we use the Scripture to reach someone's soul for Christ. Man, we share the truth of God's heart for them. And what we find is the fact that we're so self-absorbed, we're so caught up with the things that we think are important, that we lose sight of the relationship. And we're so self-centered. And as God makes this heartfelt invitation to us, and it's even with the knowledge, because we've all been in church, we know what He's done. We know the extremes. We've heard the stories. You've watched maybe the passion of the Christ. You've seen these things, and you've watched the suffering. And you go, wow, let's look at the level of God's commitment to this relationship. How hard is He willing to fight for it? He's willing to go to the absolute extreme. Amen. Yet we don't. We don't. We give God half of our attention. We focus on the things of the world, man. It's such a, it's such a travesty. It's amazing that we treat Him the way that we do. And we've got this amazing opportunity for God to build, for us to build a relationship with Him. Yet we're distant. We're disengaged. We're just like that husband-wife scenario, man. I sit down and pray and I'm distracted. i got things to do. i got a tight schedule. I mean, God already knows this, doesn't He? You know? I, I know I'm supposed to spend time in the Word of God, but you know what? I don't understand that thing. I, don't, I read it and I don't even know what I got. Well, hey, guess what? Most people don't spend time to actually study the Word. They just read it, right? It's like reading a phone book. Yeah, I got a list of names. Oh, yeah, Martha, that's a nice name. Okay, time to shut the book, right? And they go through the Bible. They don't take, they don't allow it to speak to them. They don't hear God's voice. They have that attitude that, you know what? I can do other things that are more important, which is unbelievable. The things that we think are important on this earth, all the things you're worried about right now, paying your bills, making sure your rent's taken care of, all those things. Boy, I know they feel like they're the most important thing in the world right now. But when you stand before God one day, That's right. He won't be like, man, you didn't miss a payment. Praise God you didn't miss one. I'm so proud of you. It isn't going to matter at all. He doesn't care. He's going, what did you do in the midst of the trials and the challenges? How did you depend upon me? Did you pray to me to meet that need? Or did you say, you know what, God, I got this. I'm so busy, I don't have time to talk to you, but I'm going to go to work. Right? Completely different attitude. God says, live in dependence of me, and guess what I will do? I will meet your needs. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And we think about this. People go, you know, why do I need to pray? Doesn't God already know? I mean, doesn't God, he's all knowing God. He's already seen the future. He knows what I need, so what's the whole point? 
Why do I need to tell him stuff that he already knows? Guys, you're not praying to God to inform him of, oh, guess what? My hot water here blew up. <laughs> and he's like, what? Oh, some of your names were down there quick. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. God already knows, right? It's not a matter of us informing God. It's a matter of us connecting with God, Amen. right? Yeah. Notice the example of the Exodus. He heard their cry, and then he responded. For 400 years, did he know they were in bondage? Did he see their suffering? Yep. But what did he respond to? Their cry. Because he's waiting. And God waits on us, man. He's waiting on us. He wants to connect with us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it's a matter of the heart. He says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Guys, you and I are renewed through the Word. If you're going to stand in the Word, you're going to stand in the Spirit, and you're going to be able to be strong, this Word will strengthen you. This Word will fortify you. This Word will give you what you need to stand. But it's only half the battle. In the relationship between us and God, this is half the battle. This is God's heart. When we don't pray, guess what? We have a one-sided relationship. If my wife and I have a relationship where I'm intimately pouring my heart out to her, and she just gives me the surface... We don't have an intimate relationship, no matter how much I pour my heart out to her. As God pours his heart out to me, and I don't respond, and he gets, I get to hear his heart, but he doesn't hear mine. Well, guess what? I have a superficial relationship. But because of an intimate trust and communication, there's an intimate relationship, right? It's both sides together. We tell you all the time, it's like, you know, God's speaking to us and us speaking to God. And I know that's, that seems cliche, and we could get it on a t-shirt, but man, I'm telling you, it's key. It's key. God wants intimacy with us. He wants to be close to us. And if you're not going to spend time in prayer, you are cutting it short. You're saying, you know what, I'm not worried about the relationship so much. It doesn't matter that much to me. I don't need to be close to God. I know he wants to be close to me, but it's not really important because, you know what, i got things I need to take care of. Amazingly, that's the heart that we have. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. This part right here, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God knows what you're going through. There's not a problem with that. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly how broken you may be. He knows the weight that you feel. And he's saying, you know what? I'll let you carry it as long as you want to carry it. But if you'll cast it upon me, guess what I'll do? I'll carry it for you. Yet there are people that will come to an altar with a burden on their heart, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me, God, help me. I hope I find a way out of this mess. And they drag it back to their seat. And they go back out, and God says, you never gave it to me. <laughs> cast your care. When you cast a stone, you don't have a string tied to it. You cast it, it's gone. It's no longer in your possession. You have given it up. God's our loving God, and guess what? He is waiting with bated breath to answer our prayers. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17, 18. It says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Look at this last part. And I will receive you. The God of the universe will receive you and will be a father unto you. Listen to his heart, man. He says, look, I'll be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. You'll be my children. I created all of you for this relationship, but it's only through Christ. It's only through your submission that we can commune together, that this child-father relationship can take place. Matthew 21, 22 says this, And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. 
believing, understand that our hearts are in unison with God. That's the purpose of this thing. God's saying, look, I'll answer your prayers, but you need to be praying according to what I want for you, not what you want, not the worldly concept, not what, the, not what your flesh tells you. God's waiting to do the impossible, man. He's ready to do what we don't believe is possible. But the problem is most of us don't believe it is possible. Because of that, we don't even pray. We just go, you know, that's not possible anyway, so I'm not even going to worry about it. Or we do pray, but we pray with the wrong heart. You know, Lord, I know this isn't going to happen, but I may as well ask. What the heck? See what happens. James 4, verses 1 through 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? This is a question he says. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence up out of your lust that war in your members? Aren't you guys dealing with your flesh? Isn't that your problem? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, and yet you have not because you ask nice. Look, you guys don't even ask. But when you do ask, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. He says you're asking wrong. Why is it wrong? That you may consume it upon your lusts. You're not asking because you want to commune with me. You're asking me because you want me to do something for you. This is a self-serving prayer. This is an unthankful, self-serving, selfish prayer. It's not about the relationship. It's not about aligning our hearts to God. It's about, you know what? I'm not so worried about the relationship. I'm not worried about the intimacy, Lord. What I'm worried about is this. Can you just focus on delivering what it is I'm asking you? Like an ATM machine? Lord, you know what? This is my request. I followed the code, right? Get on your knees, pray in God's name. I use Jesus' name. Come on, where's the, where's the blessing? What's going on here? We lose sight of what this thing is all about, man. Prayer is not about you just opening up what you want and running through a laundry list of garbage. God's saying, hey, why don't you connect with me? And you know what you'll see? You'll see your prayer life come to life like you can't imagine. And the last verse in James 4 says this, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Remember, this is talking about the relationship of us and God. He's the, he's the husband, we're the bride. Adulterers and adulteresses, that means you are an unfaithful companion. You're an unfaithful companion. Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. <laughs> is God going to bless unfaithfulness? Would you bless your spouse if they were unfaithful? Would you celebrate their behavior? No. You go, look, there's a problem here. God doesn't bless unfaithfulness. And yet we're unfaithful every single day and we expect God to have blessings upon us. Why am I not walking with it? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Guess what? There are no good people. That's a lie. <laughs> there are no good people. We are selfish, wretched messes. And then it says here, it says, Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So we see here that God wants to be friends. He wants a friendship. That's about intimacy, right? A friend is someone that you open up to, that you connect with. You go, your friends on Facebook, that's not your friend. Just telling you, they ain't your friends. I got 500 friends. No, 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 no. You don't have 500 friends. <laughs> you might have two or three, if you're lucky, right? People that we can actually call a real friend. And notice this. What is about a friend? James 2.23 says this in the scripture. Was fulfilled, with, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Praise the Lord. His intimacy with God gave him a friendship with the Father, man. Friendship. And there are some of you guys today, man, and you could claim that title. You could say, you know what, I'm a friend of God. Praise the Lord if that's what you can say. Man, that means that you are the kind of person that comes to God with a humble heart. Humble, man. You intensely are focused on the intimacy with the Lord. When you come to Him, man, you are broken. Your prayer life is, is rich. It's fulfilling.
and it's powerful, right? We see God working. We see God doing things, changing the planet. The things that seem to be impossible are no longer impossible. And he performs these miracles in our lives because he just likes you more than other people? No. Nope. Maybe you just did a whole lot of good things and God feels like he owes you. Oh, I better do something for him. They sure come to church a lot. Nope. It's because he has, he has their heart, right? He has their heart. What do you do for a friend? You're there for them. You provide for them. You care for them. He has their heart as they pour their heart out to God in prayer. And then guess what? They have his heart. There's a connection, a communing of two coming together. The picture that we see in marriage, right? The picture we talked about last week that we see picture, picture between Christ and the church. It's to be a wonderful, unified relationship, aligned in belief and united in desire. Meaning that what I pray for is what God would have done. Not contrary, not contrary to God's will, but I pray according to God's will. James 5.16 says this, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I want you to pay attention. There's a qualifier in there. It says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Not a fervent prayer. I'm unrighteous, but man, I pray like crazy. Tough luck. <laughs> Tough luck. It ain't going to happen. But he says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. That means somebody says, you know what? I'm praying according to God's will. I want, Lord, I want your will to be accomplished in my life. Not my desires, not my hopes. I don't have an agenda. I come to you, Lord, as your friend, as an intimate brother. I want to have communion with you, God, and whatever your will is for my life. God, that's what I'm ready for. God, speak through me and use me. And we take down the barriers that, break, that are between us and God. You see... Their heart's not full of things of the world, but the things of God. And what's awesome, I see as they enter the throne room of God, as they find their quiet place, and they get on their knees before God, it's like two old friends, right? It's like stepping through the veil and seeing a broad smile break out across God's face. And he says, hey, <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I missed you. Lord, I missed you too. Let's just connect. Let's just get our hearts aligned. I've been out in the world. It's beat me up. It's mistreated me. I've got my eyes on things I shouldn't. I've got my heart on things I shouldn't. I'm caring about things that really don't matter. God, you say I'm supposed to lay my heart. My heart's supposed to be on things above, not on things of the earth. God, help me today to get this focus back on. Let me get back on track of where I'm supposed to be. Let me connect with you, Lord. Man, if this, if this describes your prayer life, praise God, man. Praise God. I want to be your friend. <laughs> but if it doesn't, it's not because God doesn't want it to be. Understand, he's gone to the nth degree. He's done all that it takes. He's created a way. He created the tabernacle for them. He had them do exactly what, so that they could have that time with him. And Jesus died on the cross and paid the price through tearing that veil in half, man. There's no longer all that separation because Christ paid the price for the sin debt. That sin, that wall of separation is no longer there. But why in the world do we as human beings, why? Because we had this access, yet we still go back to the same sins of this world. And we put a division between us and God. 
And when we fall on our knees, we find that we can't hear God because there's something dividing us. There's something separating us. And the very things that Jesus took away from us, the very things that separated us from us, the very things that we should deny and have no contact with, we will draw them back into our life in our flesh. It's amazing. We are stiff-necked. We are hard-headed. We are selfish. And God says, if you will deny yourself this flesh, and you'll take up your cross. What's the purpose of the cross? It's to die. It's to die. And if we will die in our flesh, Jesus will live. You understand, our life in Christ is through his death, and his life in us is through our death. That's what's pictured there. When we die, he lives. When we live, he dies. Because all people see is the flesh. God's saying, hey, man, give it to me. You see, he calls out to us through his spirit, through his word, and through his people. He calls out to us. He's reaching out. He's trying to make the connection with us. The problem is, many times we don't have ears to hear. If we do, and if we are willing to hear, man, we can take our eyes off of the world and we can turn our hearts to God and commune with Him and then experience intimacy with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, God, for the message you've given us, Father, for helping us, Lord, to see you more clearly and understand the purpose, God, of really the greater purpose for salvation. It's not about just being saved. It's about our relationship with our Father. So God, help us to have that heart today. And if you're here today and you say, you know what? I don't know if I have that relationship. There are things in my life that I know right now God has convicted me in this message. There are things that I need to deal with in my life. There are divisions in my life, things that are separating me between you and God. Deal with them. Confess them. Make it right with Him. And if you say, you know what, I've never had that relationship. I've never experienced what you're talking about. This intimacy with God, I don't even know what it is. If there was a day of salvation for you, you experienced at least once, at least one time, there was an intimate moment when you met Christ face to face. And if you can't look back to that moment, then you need that moment. This is not a, a, a mental operation. This is not a, a decision that I'm going to become a Christian. No, it's a surrender of your heart to God. And when your hearts unite, salvation takes place when you realize who he is. So understand, if you've never received Christ as your Savior today, you have that chance. That intimacy is literally a prayer away, not a ceremony away, not a, not a magic prayer away. It's not about that. It's a matter of the heart. So as God speaks to your heart, as he draws you, as he's speaking to you, you have to respond. And what he's saying to you is, you know what? I died on the cross to give you a way to restore a relationship that was broken. And as long as you live in your sin and live in your flesh, we'll never be together. But if you will submit and you will allow me to pay the price for your sins, we will tear that veil. We will separate it forever. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. It will not be the words of the prayer that will save you. They will do nothing for you. If they're just words, they're nothing. There's no power behind them. God listens to the heart of man, to the heart of woman, to the heart of a boy or girl. He listens to our hearts. So with our hearts, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you have that opportunity today. And I'm going to lead you in prayer. But if you pray these, this prayer and you're not sincere and you don't mean it, you may as well just not do it at all. It's a waste of time. 
But if you want to receive him, I'm going to let you pray. I'm going to lead you in this prayer. You pray it in your heart and your mind. And if you want to receive Christ, he will receive you. He's already done all the work. Repeat after me if you want to receive him. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm so very sorry for my sin. God, I've lived separated from you for so long. And yet you've been calling out to me. Today, I surrender. Today, I submit my heart to you. Today, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. God, thank you for saving me. Help me live a life that will bring glory to your name. God, I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.